He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because his power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The word of the Lord. How do you know when you're not doing well? How do you know when you're not okay? This, of course, this is a rhetorical question. I'm here giving a sermon, so obviously I'm making a point with that question. But it's, it's also a question I could probably use a genuine answer to, because I'm really bad at, at knowing when I'm not doing well. For example, whenever I catch a cold or the flu, um, one of my most persistent symptoms is that I get really stubborn and I refuse to go to a doctor. Um, and I just become this enormous burden on my wife. She's a very caring and loving person and so she feels empathy and she'll help me get medicine and she'll make me soup and make sure that I'm comfortable. And meanwhile, I'm whining about how much everything hurts and I can't do anything for myself. And her usual response to that is, well, Brody, you're sick, go to a doctor. I mean, come on, it's fine. I try to explain to her in as objective a manner as I can that I'm fine. I have soup, I have medicine, I'm relatively comfortable, I'm doing great. Besides, everyone who goes to a doctor's office gets sick. Think about it. I'm not going there. It is usually at this point in the discussion that she'll remind me that the only reason I'm relatively comfortable is because she's working very hard to take care of me, and that it's a huge burden for her that I could relieve by just going to a doctor. But I don't know. I just, I don't know. Anyway, as she explains it to me, it's easy for me to ignore my symptoms and to imagine that I don't have that serious of a problem because of all the sacrifices she's making to take care of me. Right? And because of that, it's, it's possible for me to convince myself that things aren't that serious. But what about the times when things are really serious? About a year and a half ago, I injured my hand in a power saw. Be careful with power tools. It was really bad. Um, and, I, and I yelled for Gwen, and the first thing out of my mouth was, we need to go to a hospital now. And then I saw clear as day, I'm not okay, I need help. Right? There was no denying it. No matter how much soup I had, I couldn't deny it, that I needed help. In our text today, P- 
people who are really hurting, who are really sick, they're surrounding Jesus, and they don't have the luxury of denying that they need help. They don't have the luxury of a constant caretaker or a relatively manageable condition. They recognize that they're not safe, they're not okay, that they need help. And Jesus is, is walking through a crowd of people like that. People have come from all across the region to meet Jesus at the level place. With pains and wounds that are too painful to ignore and deny. And they're there to receive his restoring touch. And so Jesus reaches out to them one by one. And he begins the process of restoring them and healing them with, with a power that emanates from God's own spirit. But then at a certain moment, he looks up and he, he sees this sea of hurting people. And he decides to pause and say something to them. And we get this speech. The speech that Jesus gives here in the midst of healing all of these hurting people and proclaiming the nearness of God to them is something that is, is called the Beatitudes. In Latin, Beatitudes means the blessings. This is the name we give for, for this speech. It's a speech about the sort of person who is most easily at home in God's kingdom. The sort of person who, in the new kingdom that Jesus brings, is well off, is, is wealthy in the new sort of kingdom that the incarnation of Jesus represents. The most famous version of this speech, the Beatitudes, comes, in fact, from Matthew's Gospel. In, in, in that version, it's from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But here you'll notice a few differences in the way that Luke's Gospel tells this story. In Luke's Gospel, the text we read today, Jesus gives this speech not on a mountain, but on a level place. In Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount signified the beginning of God's kingdom on earth. In that sermon, Jesus describes the sort of person who feels most at home at God's kingdom. He describes the sort of relationships and love and ethical behavior that characterize God's kingdom. He described the way that fear and anxieties don't weigh people down in the kingdom of God because there, they're taken care of fully. This was the first announcement of, of God's kingdom come. And in Luke's gospel, the sermon performs much the same function. But this time, in order to hear the sermon, you had to come to the level place. In the same way that step one in healing when you're sick is to go to the doctor's office, step one in finding restoration in God is to come to the level place. The kingdom of God starts at a level place where no one is looking down on anyone else. And when Jesus starts this speech, when he pauses from his healing and restoring of these hurting people, he begins to proclaim the kingdom come and to name the restoring work that's been going on at the level place. And he starts with the blessings. He starts by announcing who is really well off, who is most at home in God's kingdom. And here's what he says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. 
Rejoice in that day and, and leap for joy, because great is your reward in the heavens, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now there's a way of reading these blessings that I think really misses what Jesus is getting at. Right? These blessings are not instructions. These are not a list of commands that you ought to try and go out and do. Right? If you're laughing, don't go make yourself weep just to check off the box that says weep and be blessed. Right? If you're not hungry, don't starve yourself in order to check that box and be hungry in order that blessing merit badge. Right? This isn't, this isn't, this isn't the scouts. This is the kingdom of God. Right? It's not like not tying, check, campfires, check, hungry, weeping. Right? These aren't things that, that godly people ought to go out and try to do. Rather, these are declarations of who the kingdom of God has come for. Who the restoration of Jesus' touch is for. And who, despite all the rejection that they face from the world, is really at home in the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come to the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the rejected, and the hated. Howard Thurman would add, Blessed are the ones with their backs against the wall. Simon and Garfunkel would add, Blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, the ratted on. But what about the people who don't feel quite at home in God's kingdom? What about these woes that Jesus proclaims? Here's what he says. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. There's an Amish scholar who I really love named Donald Craigle, who describes this moment in Luke's Gospel as the introduction of an upside-down kingdom. Jesus takes our usual frameworks of richness and poverty and, and flips them upside down. And I think that these woes are the most fascinating part of this sermon in Luke. Right? Because like Jesus is all love, right? He's a chill dude. He's not trying to get on anyone's bad side. And besides, doesn't Jesus just, shouldn't he just talk about spiritual things? I mean, why is he here talking about money and food and resources? Just like, go back to the lambs and the sheeps thing, right? We liked that, that was nice. And also, like, can we get some more wine when you get a chance? Just like, if you have time. So why are these woes here? This, this feels very not Sunday school Jesus vibes. Oscar Romero writes that a church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of society in which it is being proclaimed. What gospel is that? Very nice, pious considerations that don't bother anyone. That's the way many would like preaching to be. Those preachers who avoid every thorny matter so as not to be harassed, so as not to have conflicts and difficulties, do not light up the world they live in. And Jesus was lighting up the world he lived in. Because the Spirit speaks in blessings and woes. Why is that? Because the world is full of beauty and brokenness. 
Jesus didn't look at the state of the world and pr pronounce it all as good or bad, but instead he looks at, this, at, at things that have been fractured by sin, the powers and principalities that have such a grip on human societies, and he says, you could really learn something from the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. In these woes, Jesus is pointing out that sin has thrown the world into a kind of false scarcity. And I say false scarcity because the fundamental reality of the world as God created it is abundance. God created a lush garden full of good things and plenty to go around. God's, care, God's kingdom is characterized by abundance. So much abundance, in fact, that there's no need for greed and that the hoarding of resources or economic rivalry become an absurdity. It doesn't make sense to be greedy when there is so much abundance. But there are a lot of ways in our world in which sin has eclipsed that abundance with scarcity. I'll just give one example. According to the UN, there's enough food produced in the world today to feed everyone, and yet 821 million people around the world are chronically undernourished. We could list countless more examples of the way that the principalities and powers and, and systemic sins of human societies create a kind of illusory scarcity in a world that God created to be abundant. And that's where we're at. Something has happened to our abundance. We have forgotten how to live in abundance. And so now those who seek, those who have seek more, creating scarcity which fuels still more her, her pouring and the leveraging of resources until the level place has become a pyramid of inequality. And Jesus has strong words for the people at the top of that pyramid, benefiting from the broken, sinful condition of things. For the people that Jesus directs his woes towards, they need this scarcity to continue, otherwise they wouldn't be rich anymore. They need scarcity and not abundance. They need division and not union. They need disintegration and not integration. All of the sins that Jesus gives woes to are sins that divide people and dismember people. But Jesus came to remember God's people. We might say, blessed are you who have been pulled apart because you're being put back together. That's the mission of Jesus. But there are some who are doing very well for themselves in the division, in the scarcity, in the separation. They're rich, well-fed, and laughing. But Jesus looks at them and tells them, you have no idea how poor, hungry, and sad you really are. The people Jesus is talking about have looked at a world of scarcity and decided to try to wring out as much abundance for themselves as they possibly can. So now they're well fed at the expense of someone else's hunger. They're laughing at the expense of someone else's mourning. And they think they have it all, and they try not to think about the people that they took it from. They think they're healthy. They're denying how sick they really are. What they don't realize is that they need the healing touch of God's kingdom as much as the poor and the hurting. You see, to get where they got in life, they had to build walls 
isolate and distance themselves from the people around them. They left the level place and put their houses up in the hills. They sacrificed proximity for prosperity. What they didn't realize is that people cannot prosper without proximity. We were made after God's image, and God exists as an eternal Trinitarian community. We were made for connection and community, just as God exists for connection and community, and not isolation. We were not made to live off in the hilltops. We were not made for isolation. We were made for life on the level place, shoulder to shoulder with one another. If you build your house up on the hilltops and forsake the community that you took advantage of to get there, what will happen when your wells run dry and when your storehouses run empty? There's a lot of excitement right now around the metaverse. I'm excited. I don't know if you're excited. It seems like nearly infinite resources and capital are flowing into the creation of this alternative world in which you can have a presence that's larger than life. You can be all over the world in a matter of moments. You can have a thriving business virtually. You can have a thriving virtual network. But what happens when the power goes out? Well, then you'll realize how vulnerable you really were all along. The power goes out, the goggles come off, and eventually you might have to ask your neighbor for a cup of sugar, which no one has done in a thousand years. We need each other. This is a fact that we can't escape, no matter how much we exploit, harm, or marginalize each other to get ahead. Last week in Pastor Chris's sermon, we heard a quote from Stanley Hauerwas that said, Christianity ain't possible without friends. Life itself is impossible without friends. I love the way that Dallas Willard translates the passage that we read today. Instead of woe, which is a word we don't really use anymore, he translates it as how sad. This is his translation. How sad for you who have wealth. That's all the comfort you'll have. How sad for you who are now well fed. It won't help in the hunger to come. How sad for you who are laughing it up now. Grief and tears are on their way. How sad when people say that you're wonderful. Their fathers said the same thing about lying prophets. Jesus' point here concerning the rich is that even though they have twisted all the screws and pulled out all the stops to make themselves well-fed and secure and comfortable, their very act of hoarding resources and exploiting people for the sake of growth is harming them as well as a human being made in God's image to be in union with God and others. Jesus is saying to them, even though you're well-fed, you have no idea how hungry you really are. How sad it is to reject love for the sake of security. Howard Thurman wrote that to find ultimate security in an ultimate vulnerability, this is to be loved. Do you want to be loved? Do you want to be ultimately secure? You'll have to let the wall you built around yourself fall down. That is a hard task. We build our walls and we repair our walls when they're breached and we think that we're keeping ourselves safe, but we have no idea how dangerous that kind of activity really is. Robert Frost wrote a poem called The Mending Wall. And these are just some excerpts. The, the, the actual poem is much longer. But in it he writes this. 
Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. In the next clip, he's talking to his neighbor as they build a wall together. And he says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me. And I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. He describes this image of, of Mother Nature. The world as God created it to be breaking down walls with the freezing and thawing cycles of the winter and with the activity of animals and pests. You see, the world that God created, the natural world, will never build a wall, but it will always break them down. You have to keep mending it. You have to keep convincing yourself that it's keeping you secure. Keep convincing yourself that the hurting people you're keeping out are not your community and that, in fact, they're a threat. And that's exactly what we've learned to do. We keep mending our walls, convincing ourselves that good fences make good neighbors. We keep laughing and eating and trying to tell ourselves that this can last forever. Meanwhile, down at the level place, Jesus stands waiting with a crowd of hurting, exploited, marginalized, and yes, blessed people. They look at us on our hilltops and behind our walls and they say, how sad. Notice with me that the whole time that Jesus is talking to the rich people in this speech, they aren't even there. All the people listed in the crowd they came to the level place, and it says in verse 18, to hear Jesus and to be healed. Well, these people don't think they need any healing. They definitely didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. And they wouldn't be caught dead associating with the sick people who were down at the level place. So they stayed home. How sad. When will we realize how sick we really are? How many people we've harmed in our efforts to wring abundance out of the scarcity. How the walls we build or the investments we store up won't give us the ultimate security that is found in proximity to God and our neighbors. And so this is Jesus' invitation to us in the speech he gives today. Won't you come down to the level place? Won't you spread out a blanket next to the leper or the widow? Won't you let yourself feel your own vulnerability, your own need for healing? And then won't you let yourself feel your own blessedness? Because the kingdom of God is yours too. And the healing touch of Jesus is here for everyone who takes their seat at the level place. Let's pray. God, we know that you are on a restorative mission. We know that you are building a level place. And we pray that we will not be afraid of it. We pray that we will not tense up or get anxious or check the returns on our investment accounts when you start talking about loving the poor. 
when you start talking about the kingdom of God coming to the broken. We pray that we will not be enemies of your mission, but that we will realize our own brokenness and join you at the level place. In Jesus' name, amen.